This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. Today, I have with me one of my favorite guests and colleagues, Laura Briefer, who is the executive director of the Salt Lake City Public Utilities. And Laura is just a wealth of knowledge and a creative thinker and really just a great force here in the Utah water community. And so I asked Laura to come back on because we had had an interview kind of early April 2020 um, with John Crandall, who, who does kind of water financing talking about what we thought the impacts of COVID-19 would be um, on water infrastructure and kind of water facilities. And it was a great discussion. And so I kind of wanted to have Laura back as a follow-up to kind of see where are we kind of a year later and kind of what has COVID done? You know, what, what are some of the surprises? What are some of the things that we expected that happened? And just to kind of check in, because it's just been such a crazy year and continues to be a crazy year for the water sector with the administration change to the Biden administration. So I thought it'd be a good thing to do. So with that, Laura, you're, you're kind of a repeat on the podcast, but for those who are new, um, if you wouldn't mind just giving kind of a brief introduction to, to who you are, and then let's just kind of chat about how things are going over there. Well, great. Thanks, Emily. It's great to be back, and thank you for the invitation to return to your wonderful podcast. I've been finding them very informative and fascinating, um, so, you're, so you're doing a great job on that. And yes, my name is Laura Briefer. I am the director of Salt Lake City Public Utilities. We are a municipal uh, department and operate four separate utilities as enterprises within Salt Lake City. Uh, we have a water utility, a sewer utility, stormwater, and street lighting utility. And it, with the exception of the water utility, we serve all of Salt Lake City. With the water utility, we serve all of Salt Lake City, plus we serve outside of our municipal boundaries to communities along the, the southeastern edge of the Salt Lake Valley. And so currently those communities are within Salt Lake County, um, they include cities that have more recently incorporated, such as Mill Creek City, Cottonwood Heights, and Holiday City. So we have uh, a pretty large water service area as well. Um, we're one of the oldest retail water suppliers west of the Mississippi and the largest water retailer in Utah. Okay, as I, I love showing my husband the Salt Lake City bills because we live in, or in Cottonwood Heights. I'm like, look, look, <laughs> I like these guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll just, I'll say that given the age of our, our utilities, um, I'm here in Salt Lake City, you know, one of the, the biggest issues we're facing right now is just to, to keep up on aging infrastructure and in, in all three wet utilities, water, sewer, and, and stormwater. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of that, but it's definitely been um, a lot of strategic and creative approaches to financing and capital asset management uh, that my team has just been doing a phenomenal job of working working on. 
Yeah, I, I you have a great team and, and they're they're really great experts in their field that um, I love working with on the various projects that we get to do so. And so I think it's it's always great to give a shout out to the people in the trenches, you know, yeah. and what they do. <laughs> Especially this last year, you know, and and yes. all of 2020, the last actually probably year and a half now. Yeah. Yeah. They've impressed me with their resiliency and their dedication to the public. Yeah. Which is a great segue into kind of what I was thinking, maybe we could like, maybe kind of circle back around. And so, you know, our, our interview was, was now almost a year ago. And so, you know, for those listeners who are, are newer to the podcast or, you know, want a refresher, you know, some of the things that we talked about with Laura and John Crandall were, you know, what are the impacts of COVID-19 going to be on our municipal water suppliers? And, and some of the things that we talked about were the fact that at the time of the interview, we were deep into, you know, the working from home orders. Everybody was, you know, um, not going down into the city centers. A lot of the big institutional clients that the municipalities had, like schools and, and um, you know, downtown buildings, you know, were not having any water use. And so one of the things that we kind of worked through was, you know, what does that do to a municipality when their, um, you know, revenue structure is built on rate, rates and usage? And so at the time, John and, and Laura and I talked a lot about kind of like, will this upset the market? Like, you know, will, you know, investors and, in, in, you know, the people who hold bonds be nervous about, you know, looking at water going forward with this kind of disruption in the revenue stream? And um, that was kind of some of the things we talked about back in, in April 2020. And so I'm just kind of curious, Laura, like wh what came to be with that? Like as, as the year has progressed with COVID and as people have kind of stayed from home and then moved back into their offices, you know, what have you seen from the municipal side as, um, you know, kind of the impacts of that disruption? Yeah, that's a great question. And at the time we talked last year, we had so much uncertainty about that. And what we found a year later is that our revenues really weren't impacted very much at all. And in fact, with many people staying home and working from home, we see, we've seen a slight uptick in revenue from the residential class of users on our system. And, and we have seen a slight downtick in the commercial, industrial, and institutional side, but nothing that really impacted us overall uh, very much. Um, I will say, though, that some of our uh, community members were impacted economically by the pandemic in terms of, you know, their, their jobs were in jeopardy, um, a lot of service industry folks. And, and what we did see was an uptick in people needing assistance to pay their water bills. Mm -hmm. And we were able to resolve that. We, we actually have, we participate with the Salvation Army in a water assist program where if they meet certain criteria, they're eligible to receive help on their water bills. Mm -hmm. um, able to use the first tranche of CARES funding through the city to increase the amount of money into that assist program by quite a bit. And I think that was also really helpful too, that we could, we could provide that assistance to the people that were vulnerable, most vulnerable during this pandemic situation. 
Interesting. So it's not like you took an institutional hit, but more was kind of like where you saw the impacts are on the individual users, which makes total sense. You know, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And the CARES Act was, uh, if I remember correctly, kind of one of the early kind of the sister act, the PPP loan, right? The kind of the bailout <clears throat> the states. Yeah, it was it was one of those the first federal tranches of funding to to assist the the states and also and then that was allocated to the different communities counties and cities um, and so that was that was really great that we were able to do that and and other departments in the city were able to also allocate that funds to areas where they needed either revenue replacement or um, or just assistance with some of the, the the issues that they were having as well and have you seen that kind of taper off as things have changed or because I mean I mean there's still one of the things I'm most interested to see is how this recovery occurs you know you know for those of us who are able to work at home and you know you know in all honesty my life didn't really change that much from the pandemic besides the you know ambient stress and and you know just disruptions but you know a lot of people I'm interested to see kind of like how the recovery occurs and have you seen um, kind of like a, a change in those requests for kind of those community assistant programs as things have progressed or, or is it kind of, do you think we're going to have kind of a permanent tranche? I, like, I love that word, by the way, mm-hmm. a permanent pocket of people who are going to, you know, fall into this category more regularly now. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that's something that we're watching for in, in addition to increasing the amount of funding into that water assist program we also did a few other things to help our community members better adapt to, to the changing conditions. And one was we allowed for deferrals of bill payments up to six months, and in some cases up to a year. Uh, and then we've also incorporated certain budget billing types of programs too. So one of the changes I think we made and, and probably other similarly situated water utilities made is really focused on the structure and implementation of our customer assistance programs. For some time during the pandemic, we weren't permitted to turn off water for non-payment. And I think it was in August or September of last year when we were, when we reinstituted that, that turn off for non-payment payment, but alongside that our customer assistance programs were much more, I would say much more generous and and also much more tailored to the situation at hand. And and because of that, our receivables and and the late payments really dropped off quite quite a bit. Oh, great. So so maybe kind of like as was a silver lining is kind of looking at some of structural, you know, issues that may not have been as apparent before the pandemic. That's right. And, and actually, nationally, some of my national peers, you know, we've had this discussion throughout the pandemic about rate structures, customer assistance programs, affordability, especially affordability of combined water and sewer bills, and the policies of turning water off for non-payment. And it's been a really wonderful discussion with a lot of really great ideas. But one of the things that came out of that was quite a cohesive lobbying effort with the national industry organizations like American Water Works Association or the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. 
where we actively brought the concern to members of Congress and, and said, look, you know, water is usually out of sight and out of mind, but with the pandemic and all of the economic impacts throughout the nation, and they vary depending on the region, but with these impacts, the individual community members and businesses really need to be evaluated for different kinds of assistance programs. And we need to up our game in terms of investment in aging infrastructure and in infrastructure needed for regulatory compliance to also help soften the impact to our, our respective ratepayers because we need to raise rates to do that kind of investment. And so how can, how can the federal government also help communities in that way as well? So it's sort of that two-pronged approach of increasing federal affordability programs, as well as increasing federal investment into infrastructure um, that, that would help the nation's ratepayers mm-hmm. be able to afford what they need. I also like how you call it regulatory infrastructure, (laughs) soft infrastructure. (laughs) Well, and and I think what I meant by that was, I probably didn't articulate it well, but I think what I meant by that is some communities are very impacted by regulatory requirements. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that affordability component that's written into the Clean Water Act, in part because of the consent decrees of the combined sewer overflow situations, particularly back east, you know, those, that affordability component is just super important. So when a regu- new regulation is coming into play, being able to evaluate that impact is really important. And so there's been a lot of conversation about making sure we have the metrics for that right. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it is going to be different no matter where you are and what your system looks like. And, you know, you know, as we discussed kind of in our, our discussion with John Crandall in April, you know, every system's different and the cost for those systems are just dependent mm-hmm. on kind of what your component parts are. Yeah. Um, and I'll say a silver lining with the pandemic is that on a national scale, you know, we've been able to be involved in a lot of these conversations more than we used to be. The opening up of things like Zoom meetings, even though we're all kind of tired of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that a little bit more approachable and standardized in terms of how we get together and, and talk through things, I think gave the, the water community as a whole a huge benefit in having this regional and national coordination on these policy issues that affect us, affect every community, but also affect our national community in terms of access to clean water and um, and protection of our environment. Yeah. And you're just opening up the marketplace of ideas, you know? Um, That's right. Like I had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago with Tony Parrott and Sharice Horn from St. Louis mm-hmm. and their, their system. And they had just such creative and really interesting ideas about, you know, a lot of the diversity items that you and I had spoken about. Um, kind of in our first podcast is one of your priorities. And it was just really cool to talk to, I mean, because obviously St. Louis is an incredibly different city than Salt Lake City, Utah, but still similar needs from like wastewater treatment, sewage and and water providing. But it was just really cool to like talk about, talk brass tacks about how a different city was approaching things. And so I can imagine on a national level to have a, a much broader discussion that's been really fruitful. Yeah, I've actually been in discussions with Tony Parrott. Yeah. <laughs> we have 
on our on the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, he and I both serve on the board of directors there. And we've had a few subcommittee kind of breakout subcommittees on things like water affordability and infrastructure. And I think the one that he served on there was the diversity and inclusion, you know, equity committee. Um, and they had some really, really great ideas and thoughts to bring forward as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really enjoy talking to those two. Yeah. So then Laura, it sounds like the pandemic has thankfully not been as disruptive as we thought to the overall picture for, for the water utilities. You know, we've addressed some kind of the issues at the individual water user level, which are you know ne- necessary and probably overdue for some attention. But you also kind of indicated that you as the group have had some good federal lobbying efforts. And so with the American Recovery Plan, right? Is that the name for the new Biden administration infrastructure bill? No, that that one is still going through Congress. I mm-hmm. believe American Recovery Plan is that next tranche of sort okay. of COVID relief dollars. Okay. Yeah. And in those isn't there a pretty large uh, money set aside for, for water, right? For in the yes, federal funding that, side. That is right. Yeah. Water and sewer are specifically named as, you know, potential beneficiaries for projects under the American Recovery Plan Act, um, which is great. And, and I think part of it is actually specifically related to the new lead and copper rule that's anticipated to be enacted to, to help communities comply with that new rule as well. Awesome. And so are you looking at specific projects in here in Salt Lake City that could potentially be beneficiaries of funding if it comes through, um, if, if, if it's able to get passed through Congress? Yes, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, no, we've been, we've been busy. I, I mean, a, another shout out to my team. I have this our chief engineer, Jason Brown, and deputy directors, Jesse Stewart and Marion Rice, and then all of all of the folks that are working with them. The, the capital asset management program here has really taken off in great ways the last few years. And it's really set us up to be able to be super responsive. We're, we're still looking, we're still digging into the, the US Treasury eligibility requirements that were just released this week for that money. But we have lists of projects we've been submitting in part to capture, hopefully some of the Salt Lake City's $87 million allocation of that funding, but also perhaps to capture some of the state's $1.6 billion allocation of that funding. And, you know, one of the great things, I think it's a, a state priority for any funding that the state would allocate to a project via a grant or, or some other mechanism, I'm not sure how they're going to do that. They want to see that the municipality or local government has some skin in the game too and is allocated part of their funding to that same same project. So the opportunities for a community to really leverage this next ARP funding, I think are tremendous. Um, so we're, we've been working hard on that. And again, we've got, we've got lists of projects. One of the biggest ones though, I think, you know, it would be great to, to put some of that funding toward our water reclamation facility that we're in the middle of 
construction that has to be completed by 2025. The project costs have increased on that due to materials and labor, which may also have been one of the negative outcomes of the pandemic. But it would be great to put some type of funding toward that, you know, to really soften the long-term mm-hmm. impact of rate increases and, and debt service to the city. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the projects we talked about with John um, a year ago, because I think we talked about, you know, the issue of stacked projects. You know, the fact that, you know, it's not just one piece of infrastructure at one point in time that we're replacing, but oftentimes in a, in a municipality like yours, you're going to have multiple projects that need, you know, upgrading and repair um, at the same time. And, and that was one that you had identified as a, as a pretty big piece of that. Right. Yeah. Well, that's super exciting. How, how have the communications gone from the local level up to the federal level regarding, you know, wanting to express support for the passage of this act? Do you, are you at all familiar with kind of those communications? I, I'm not familiar with those communications. We, I, we haven't, well, at least, at least from my department, we haven't been too active in talking with our federal representatives in the past They've been quite supportive when we went for the uh, loan from the Water Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act through EPA. We actually received letters of support from most of our delegation on that. You know, so I, I, I imagine that, I mean, I couldn't speak for them, but I imagine right. that water infrastructure is one of those things that, you know, holds importance to, to them and to I know to some of our state leaders as well. Hoping, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think the way this funding works is it, it gets allocated to the state and then the state allocates based on guidance from the U.S. Treasury. Uh-huh. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, they just came out with new treasure guidelines like 48 hours ago that kind of yeah. define what's, uh, what's eligible. Um, we had a Utah Executive Water Task Force meeting yesterday, and for those listeners who are outside Utah, this is a, a great body that meets about once once a month to discuss water legislation. And the the issue of the guidelines came up because there was a question of whether or not those funds could be applied to secondary secondary systems, like secondary mm-hmm. um, water systems, because it's not directly water distribution or sewer for culinary needs. And so. It sounds right. like there's still some eligibility criteria to be to be worked out. Um, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but on that note, if the water is, if, if the funding is coming from the federal government to the states for the states to allocate, you know, in the last year, we've also had a state administration change. You know, we have a new governor. Has anything changed from that front in terms of an administration change from Governor Herbert to Governor Cox in terms of funding or availability or priorities for water that, that you've noted? I have not noted any any change between administrations on that. I think I think both administrations seem to be quite interested in the water community and the needs that the water community has. But I think you know, that this type of funding that we're receiving now through the Recovery Act is kind of a new thing that we haven't seen before. And mm-hmm. I think that I, I believe that there's a legislative session that will be next week, actually, perhaps to talk a little bit about legislative priorities 
and executive priorities in how this money is allocated and expended. It might be the first of a couple special sessions actually. And so that'll be, I, I think by next week, we'll have more information about how our executive and legislative branches prioritize infrastructure like water. Hmm. How fun it is to be talking about how we divide up the pie instead of fighting over <laughs> the same pieces. <laughs> There's a, there is a lot of a lot of need to I, our systems. I believe our systems across the state have a lot of a lot of need, and um, and so you know ha having some criteria developed at the state level and and a programmatic process would be really helpful. I think in in fairly and equitably dividing that up. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, because they are public dollars, we want to make sure they go as far as possible into the, those projects, you know, that have the biggest bang for their buck. So yeah, an allocation right. process makes total sense. So. Or, or to the communities that, mm -hmm. you know, may have struggles in terms of trying to implement projects for on a community level too. So yeah, agreed. Well, aside from the community assistance program um, matters, have you noticed anything else that has kind of come up, you know, from your perspective in terms of the last year and disruption? And, and kind of what I'm thinking about a little bit more is I've had several podcasts recently that have really focused on kind of like the human element of water and, and um, kind of making sure that we're, we're building the pipelines and the infrastructure to get the right people in place. And so one right. thing I've kind of been following just in the news and in general, like I heard this really interesting article um, on the radio the other day that was talking about um, the wave of resignations that are coming as people reassess their lives and want to do things different <laughs> post pandemic. Mm -hmm. Have you seen anything in terms of kind of like, you know, supporting like community programs to kind of get more folks into programs like water or kind of anything that like, as people are kind of reassessing career paths and, and ways to pick careers that make sense for where they live, um, kind of on the people side by any chance, just kind of from you, because you also are a boss of many folks and, and hire mm -hmm. people and, and, you know, are looking for those, those uh, individuals with expertise. Has that has something that's come yeah. up at all? It has. And on the workforce question, I think there are a number of ways to look at it. So yes, there's the recruitment piece and, you know, the engagement that's involved in, in working with our community members in terms of letting them know about the jobs within the sector and how important those jobs are and how we talk about them. We do have good partnerships with community colleges and universities, but this year we actually are experimenting with an apprentice program. And uh, actually Salt Lake City allocated some of its initial CARES funding for an apprentice program. And our department was one of the ones that jumped up and said, yes, <laughs> we'd like to try that. And the CARES funding expires at the end of this fiscal year. So on, on June 30th, but we've decided in our, our proposed budget for the next fiscal year, we're, gonna, we're going to continue that program. Mm -hmm. And we have identified positions within our department where apprenticeships would be a great way to bring somebody in, even with, you know, even if they didn't even graduate high school, right? Like mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things that we're trying to also accomplish as a city is there, the pandemic really 
I think it really highlighted some of the jagged edges of inequality that already existed in our community, but just became much more apparent given the challenges during the pandemic. And one of the issues we had was school attendance, um, oh. graduation rates. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, as someone, as a department and as a, as a city, a municipality that really wants to engage and, and help our community in a lot of different ways, you know, I, I feel like this experiment in terms of apprenticeships that don't necessarily require a high school or college degree, um, because there are many jobs that, you know, trades and other jobs that one could do without that education could really help uh, some of our community members establish a foothold and, and get where they need to be. Um, so that, that's one of the things that we're looking at in terms of workforce. The other items around workforce that I think are really big for us and, and in general for the water community is just the, the changes in how we do our work. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot less paper. We've we figured out ways to do things with a lot less paper. We figured out ways to do things with a lot less in-person time. We've also figured out that there are challenges too with both of those. And, and we're trying to come back to balance in terms of how we coordinate our work groups and, and functions, how we establish a strong organizational culture and maintain those connections with our employees. We have 450 employees and that connection is the reason why many employees come to work every day. Mm -hmm. In fact, you mentioned retirements. We've had a number of people who had stayed long after retirement eligibility because this was their family. And with the changes in the pandemic and no longer being able to have that per interpersonal connection, we saw retirements right and left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> particular group of people and I don't blame them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So I think on the workforce side, there are a lot of, there are a lot of details, a lot of, there's a lot of thinking, rethinking about how we work together, how our offices are designed, how we recruit, how we retain people, how we manage people. I, I really think that it gave us a lot of interesting opportunity in that way. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, I, by no means, you know, is your institution alone on those front, but, you know, it, it's, I also think having worked for government and having worked for, for the private sector now too, they're different, they're different cultures, <laughs> you know, and, and every, and obviously every institution is going to have its own unique culture. But I, I think that in general, the, the workforce question and maintaining those connections and maintaining, um, you know, a, a positive enterprise, you know, mm -hmm. and a productive enterprise, um, but one that's still flexible enough and, and responsive to the moment. I, that's the challenge, you know, for, for everybody. And especially in, a field where we're having so many retirements in general, like you just mentioned retirements. And then like, you know, the demography of our field is changing at the same time that the skills of our field is changing. You know, just, I feel like every day there's like a new technology that someone wants to look at or is asking us about, or there's a new something or other that I've never heard of before, you know, that, that they want me to look into. And so um, those are big challenges. <laughs> I, I also want to say, um, that, you know, some things happened during this last year that we could have never anticipated. And, 
you know, one of what's, what's really become even more important to me has always been important, but it, but it's maintaining that flow of communication um, across our, our organization is so important. People were so hungry for information. There was so much uncertainty, especially earlier on in the pandemic and constant flow of information and reassurance that, yes, we know this is an issue. We are evaluating it and we will get back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, things, things come up like, um, and this is kind of the organizational culture piece that, you know, I worked very hard to resolve was, well, some of us have to come to work every day because that's the nature of our jobs. And yeah, someone has to turn the pipe. <laughs> right. And then there is a class of workers in the executive level or administrative level that have the luxury of working from home, <laughs> if you call it that. Yeah. But there is that perception, right, of, of, of a dividing line. Uh, it was so important for myself and my leadership team to show up and, and show, yeah. up, show up in communications, show up in person. Um, another thing that we found, you know, having having emergencies within that emergency was kind of that was kind of interesting. So we had a five point oh, seven like pipe <laughs> right after, you know, soon after the the stay at home orders were in place. And one of the first things you do in emergency response after an earthquake is you make sure you know where your employees are, right? And we realized, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. with every all these people, you know, working remotely, half of our department is working remotely. We need a way for us to, to know where people are in case of an emergency. So we had to develop, we had to innovate and develop, you know, a new application where people signed in from their location using our GIS. So we knew. Oh, interesting. Each people civil unrest during this time that, that had a big human impact on our department. We have a very diverse workforce and, you know, people have strong opinions on all sides of, of that situation. And, you know, just keeping the lines of communication open again, were just really important and stressing civility within our own organization and to the public we serve. That was mm-hmm. in an incredible I, I just have to say, I'm just so proud of the people that I work with. It's It was an amazing journey this year from that perspective. Yeah. And, and that's, and I mean, and those are tools that'll serve you in the future too. You know what I mean? And like you know, those communication skills would, you know, born out of necessity or things that I think that everyone would benefit from in the future in general. So did you end up doing like an internal website for internal communications or like, you know, I think that signing in on your GIS is, is a really good concrete example. Um, like what are some of the other things that you did to kind of resolve those or address those kind of um, that need for that flow of information? Yeah, we, well, we did, we do have an internal website that we posted uh, all the executive orders that Salt Lake City had, I can't remember, 11 or 12 executive orders, one right after the other. Yeah. <laughs> um, emergency proclamations, you know, we, we posted all of those. Um, I sent out almost weekly emails to department wide. I invited people to call me or visit me 
And many people took me up on that. You know, as I said, especially early on, there was a lot of fear and the uncertainty and what would happen. And um, I spent, I, I spent a, a really good amount of time during, during that period to very, be very open to communication. And one of my colleagues I can, from another organization, I think in the, the Eastern part of the country, we were having this conversation and it really rang true to me. He said, it used to be my job was 80% outward facing and 20% inward facing, you know, as the CEO of a large mm -hmm. uh, utility. And he said that completely flipped during the pandemic where my focus was, was majority internal and it had to be that way. And, and I, I, that really rang true for me too, that, you know, we, we had to look internally a little bit more carefully and be available there and, and maybe switch our, our priorities for, for some time in order to take care of, take care of our, our city family. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And I think that's what needed to happen. And, but, and those are lessons that'll kind of like continue to go forth too. you know, like bringing, bringing that corporate culture and that city family. I honestly, if I could be really frank, I kind of forgot about the earthquake. <laughs> and when you go back and you actually look at 2020 as like all of the, so much happened in that year. And yeah. I think of our mayor Mendenhall, who, who I, I just have the highest respect for, you know, she came in in November you know, and, and, you know, had her platform was, you know, a multi, multi-pronged platform for sure. But, you know, a lot of her platform was, we're going to plant trees and we're going to kind of do <laughs> these like progressive tradition, you know, kind of like forward thinking activities. And then, you know, I, every day, there was a period of time every couple, like, like every couple of weeks, I was like, I feel like we need to send the mayor's office like flowers or something to say, <laughs> thank you for, <laughs> thank you for staying on top of the ongoing wave of crises that are coming towards you. <laughs> she, she was just amazing. Um, we had weekly cabinet conference calls from the very beginning and we, and we're still having them. They've now gone, they just, they were going every two weeks and now they're every month just devoted to situational awareness and response mm -hmm. to these events. And uh, I just, I admire her and our entire cabinet at Salt Lake city for just being so open and willing to roll up their sleeves and, uh, and help and just the great concern for all of the public we serve mm -hmm. in every way, you know, talking with our justice court director or, you know, our public services director, our police chief, who is still has a lot on his plate due to some of the civil unrest issues, you know, just what a great group of people mm -hmm. and Mayor Mendenhall just showed great leadership through the entire year and still does yeah yeah um, and what a year it was <laughs> well Laura you know that I just kind of wanted to check in I mean that that's kind of why I wanted to have you back on because it was such a year and, and I just you know from a water perspective but also just you, you know I think it is important to kind of reflect and and look at you know how challenges forge a better future and so that was just kind of, this is, you know, some of my podcasts have like very specific goals and, you know, very specific projects we talk about. And this one's just kind of a little bit more free form because I think it is important to kind of take a moment and say, you know, what did we learn and, and how do we do better and, and what was good? 
is there anything that that you know still sticks out at you that we didn't get a chance to really talk about or that you think you know is kind of a salient moment from the last you know 18 months year or so i mean i i feel like we're still reflecting and i think i think the continued reflection is really important um i i think most days i have an aha moment of something that i've learned i just yeah that that process of of reflection and and both personal reflection and organizational reflection and community reflection is is really important at this time. I think this last year has made all of us a lot stronger and has made all of us a lot closer in many ways. And, And I'm really grateful for those silver linings. I'll say one of the only other things is as a public agency, we have a, a, a moral obligation and a legal obligation to make sure that we are communicating with our the public we serve and we're getting feedback on things like ordinances and rate increases and budgets and stuff like that. And I do want to give a shout out to our city leaders, both the mayor and city council, in terms of being innovative in the way that we continue that public interaction, even if, when we couldn't do it in person. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of work in remote meetings, but also, you know, we found new ways to present master plans to the public, right? We're like, well, we're going to do mm-hmm. a Facebook live event. <laughs> um, and I think we learned yeah. a lot about that too, is as a city that um, we have so many more tools now that might make participating in important public processes and, and, and getting important information um, in a very transparent way from our governments, you know, doesn't have to be that you have to attend a 7 p.m. city council meeting in person. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, that doesn't work that, for everybody. Yeah, we can really, open, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. And, mm-hmm. and, and maybe there's a more equitable way for us to, to have that necessary engagement with people. And, and that, that I think, you know, the standard way we did things before the pandemic, a lot of that just got blown to pieces. We're, we're now, I think, much more aware of the public need, but also, you know, more open to making changes where we need to. Yeah, we're resilient, which is what we need to be. Yep. That's exactly right. Good yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very busy woman and, and you have a lot of pretty amazing projects happening. And um, I'd love to have you on again at some point to talk about a project or a concept or, you know, I just, I, I like keeping a, a kind of a pulse on what the city has got going on because it is it is where we live and, and, and learn and, and thrive. And so I think it's important to kind of keep that flow of information going. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, we'll have to have you on again. <laughs> Well, I'd love to, and it's always great to talk with you, Emily. So (laughs) thank you. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.